have your copy of God's Word, I would love for you to turn to the book of Mark. We're starting chapter 8 this morning, moving along. I have a thank you card from Mary Klein's family that uh, I forgot to read a while ago. I want to read it for you. Uh, she passed away recently, and her family says, thank you so much for the flower arrangement. Your kindness and thoughtfulness meant so much to us, Aaron, Angie, and the family. So um, thank you for your contributions to that, and uh, it means a lot to the families when we do that. Mark chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. I want to start off by saying that this is not a repeat of a previous miracle, okay? The feeding of the 4,000 is distinctly different from feeding of the 5,000. And so in light of that, though, we'll talk about some of the differences as we go through it. You remember the first time that you rode on an airplane? Or maybe the first time you saw the Grand Canyon? Or even the ocean? Or maybe... A blue whale. Those things are huge. You remember that? How awestruck you were, how amazing it was, that how big and vast and incredible it is of an experience. Well, this morning we're going to see Gentiles, not Jews, and we're all Gentiles, so we, we, we feel connected to them, I hope. We're going to see Gentiles experience that same moment of amazement as they watch Jesus do a creator miracle something that they would have never seen any of their gods do. So the context kind of all, ties us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, where God said to Abraham, the father of the Jews, he said, in you the peoples of the earth will be blessed. And Mark is recording that promise fulfilled in Jesus Christ in this miracle, as, as well as the ones we've already talked about in the preceding verses. Mark records this Second creation miracle, because it is creation, out of nothing. And he does it to show Christ's inclusion of the Gentiles into the kingdom of God, which is what God told Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. So let me read this. As Jesus is finishing up his circuit route through the Gentile territories with this one last event, follow along as I read chapter 8, verses 1 through 10. In those days, there was again a large crowd. And they had nothing to eat. He called the disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they're already, they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way. And some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered him, Where can anyone get bread, enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? He asked them. Seven, they said. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he said these, he, he said these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. Let's pray. Father, you are an amazing God, and we see so many amazing things in your word. I ask this morning, Father, for us to have the faith to hear it, a faith to trust it, to believe it and to apply it in our own hearts. In your son's name I pray, amen. 
So Mark is recording this expression of, of Jesus' compassion on this crowd and this crowd of Gentiles with a miracle that's creation in its essence. He's creating something from nothing. Seven loaves is not enough to feed 4,000 plus people. So take that to the bank. But this also signals their inclusion into the kingdom of God, which is a glorious event. So Jesus' compassion for all humanity is demonstrated by this miracle. How did this miracle from the Creator do that? Demonstrate His compassion for all of humanity? Well, we're going to talk about that. Jesus brings compassion to humanity through three actions we see in this miracle. First, He sees a physical need. He sees a physical need. Verses 1 through 3, let's read it again. In those days... There was again a large crowd, and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they've already stayed with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, and some of them have come a long distance. All right, so we're still in Decapolis, which is a a province of Rome, east of the Sea of Galilee. Ten cities make up this province. It's a very desolate area. But this is where Jesus has come as he made his route around the Sea of Galilee through the Gentile territories. And he's got a large crowd with him. And Jesus perceives that they don't have any more food. Jesus perceives their need. Even if they don't perceive their need. And he voices that to the disciples. They will need food before long is basically what Jesus is saying. These people have no more food in their provisions. They will need more food. Now, why are they without food? Well, Jesus tells us they've been with me three days. They've been there and they've eaten all the provisions that they might have brought with them. Matter of fact, even the disciples are getting pretty low. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But they've been listening to Jesus for three days, knowing that they were eventually going to run out of food if they didn't do something. But Jesus' message is worth their time. Jesus' message is worth three days. It's worth them spending time with him. Now, we might ask, well, why would they stay with Jesus for three days? Well, let's think about who the Gentiles are. They're pagans. Their religions are all over the map. If If they're Roman, they've got gazillions of gods. If they're Greek, they've got gazillions of gods. They don't have one God. They don't have anybody speaking truth to them. They're hearing new truths. That's their motive. They're hearing something brand new. Brand new. Every, and everything they're hearing from Jesus is opposed to what they grew up listening to in their Gentile pagan religions. So they're listening and they're soaking up these truths about Yahweh, our God, and about salvation and about what he's come for. As, as Jesus told us in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is what he's preaching to the Gentiles. Now, these Gentiles have no idea what the kingdom is yet, but he's instructing them. They had never had such spiritual interaction with anybody. Not their idols, not their religious ceremonies. Their rituals were just rituals. They didn't accomplish anything. They had never had this. And even if Jesus is speaking to them in parables, which he probably is for the most part, they were drawn to him and drawn to listen to Jesus, and he taught them for three days. I'd have trouble talking for three days. I mean, I can talk a lot, but I'd have trouble talking for three days. But Jesus was pouring out these truths, and in in this very isolated, very desolate place, there's no 
Casey's across the street. There's no Jack Flash across the road. There's nobody down the street that can provide them anything, including water in in certain situations. They're in a very desolate place. But Jesus saw their need, not just their physical need, but he saw their spiritual need too. Now he sees their need for physical saving right off the bat. And that's what he's talking to his disciples about. He sees that they're going maybe to collapse, faint, maybe even die in the desert if they don't get some food. Now, why wouldn't Jesus just sustain them supernaturally while they went home? Well, I'm glad you asked. You know what? Jesus does not do miracles to make his life or our life easier. He doesn't. He does miracles to bring glory to the Father and the one and only God. So if he had supernaturally suspended them and and sustained them while they walked home, if they're like any of us, they would get home and go, well, look what I did. I've been going four days without food. What a diet. You know, we'd have bragged on ourselves. We'd have thought it was us. We'd have gutted it out like Americans do. So Jesus knew that's probably one reason why he wouldn't have done it. But Jesus knew he needed to do something that would drive home the truths he was teaching. Jesus seeks to do the will of the Father and glorify him. And Jesus is always, always seeking to refine our faith, to make it stronger, to make it purer. He's always using life to make us grow closer to him in trust and belief. Many of them had come from far away and their stomachs were empty. And if they had gotten home by themselves, they'd have just thought they did it. So Jesus sees their hunger. He sees that need. He sees they need food. You don't see him saying they need more Bible. He knows they need food. He's been giving them Bible for, for three days. He sees their hunger. He sees their need to be saved from a physical danger, but also from a spiritual one. And so he plans. He plans to show them the Creator. Now, if you were here when I talked about the miracle of feeding the 5,000, I made a very strong point that Jesus created something out of nothing. Nothing. Seven loaves is nothing compared to 4,000 plus people. It's probably closer to 10 or 15,000 people in this particular story. He's creating out of nothing. He's breaking off not a bite of bread, a whole serving of bread for each person. Everybody got fed. I'm getting to the end of the storm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But he created it out of nothing. Their idols could never do that. They'd never seen anything like this. But Jesus plants seeds of salvation in this miracle. I mean, the whole reason Jesus came in, in Mark 2, 17, he says, it is not the well who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That's what he's doing here in these Gentile territories. He's coming to people who no longer see themselves as worthy of anything. They realize they're sick. Now, sometimes we have this reaction that James talks about in chapter 2 of his book. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that? See how important it is to see the needs and to seek to fulfill them? It's not so that we can be saved. It's because 
we are born again in Christ. So the question we ask this morning is, who do you see around you that has a need? Physical ones are everywhere in this community, and so are the spiritual ones. Who do you see? Who do you see around that needs someone to fill a need? When God brings them across your path, don't let it go and and slip away. Don't hesitate to help. Don't wait for them to ask for it. Be. Take some initiative. Be deliberate. Ask the question. Find a way to give them what they need. And sometimes when we, as, as Christians, and I'm talking about myself as much as anybody, sometimes we want them to conform to our rules before we help them. We want them to act like us, to meet our decorum before we actually give them any kind of physical or spiritual help. But grace does not operate like that, and you see Jesus doing it right here. He doesn't wait and have an altar call for the Gentiles and say, okay, all of you who get saved, get bread. No, he didn't do any of that. Grace doesn't do that. We cannot hold the lost people to Christian values until they become a Christian. They have no Christian understanding. Jesus didn't do that to these Gentiles. So we need to stop expecting the lost, the lost out there, those who don't know Christ, the spiritually bankrupt souls. We, we need to stop expecting them to behave like we do. To, to meet our standards before we help them. It's unfair. It's anti-gospel. It's plain and simple. If we think that forcing behavior modification on them, if we think forcing that on them makes them right before God, we're wrong. The only thing that makes you right before God is Jesus Christ. That's who they need. But sometimes they can't hear us over the growling of their stomachs or the freezing temperatures they may be experiencing or other needs they may have. Many in this town need our attention, our help, and our love. They need us to see their needs. They do. Every week, teens and children come to this building at one point during the week, and they all need spiritual parenting. They need someone to help them understand the truth of Jesus Christ. We're teaching them that, but you could help with that. So don't hesitate. Run to the battle for souls because it's there. It's out there. It's ours for the taking. Give them the gospel of grace and love by the actions you portray, by the works of your hands. You can give them the gospel of grace and love. You don't need anybody's permission to help somebody. You really don't. You don't need any permission to come and come alongside some of these that need help. Feel the need of the gospel. That's our ministry here. That's what God's given us right now, and that's where we need to focus our energies and our efforts. Jesus saw in this situation a need to save the Gentiles from their physical hunger, but also their spiritual hunger. He saw that need, and now he's going to use it to refine the faith of the disciples. Point number two, Jesus prompts faith to save. Verses four through five. Listen to what the interaction between Jesus and the disciples. His disciples answered him after he said, hey, we need to feed these people. His disciples answered him, where can anyone get enough bread here in this desolate place to feed these people? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked them. Seven, they said. So here, (laughs) I know what you're thinking. 
I know what you're thinking because I thought it all week long. Are these disciples that dense? Do they really not get it? They just sat through a feeding of 5,000 people, not even hardly weeks before. They saw Jesus take five loaves, not seven, and feed 20,000 plus people. Are they really that dense? How clueless could they be? Well, they're, they're not the brightest lights in the harbor, okay? But I believe they did remember the 5,000 feeding. I re- believe they remembered it. But now this is a, a little different situation. And I think we can take their question as really not a, a question of faith, but more of us like, okay, so, so what, Jesus? You want to feed them. That would be like, great, but look where we are. You know, they probably remembered the miracle. And they're kind of at a loss for how to help now. Of course, they really can't help, right? They can't make food out of nothing. But they're trying to understand, and they're just like, sure, Jesus, like, where is anyone going to get enough bread to feed this? There's no vendors for miles. There's no S&W, no Kmart, Walmart, whatever. Jesus opens a spot by that question for them to trust him a little bit more. He tested their memory a little bit and to see if they learned the lesson. So then he pushes a little further. How many loaves do you have? Notice, if you remember back to the 5,000, he didn't ask them how many loaves they had. How many loaves are there? And he told them to go out into the crowd and see how many loaves were out there. And we know from John chapter 6 that a little boy with his lunch of five loaves and two fish gave it up for that one. But this time, Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, what do you have? What do you have in your pack? What do you have in your backpack? He's testing them. He's pushing their faith a little farther along. What are you willing to give, to sacrifice, to feed this crowd? Well, they probably thought when they counted up seven loaves, they thought, Jesus can't use that. He obviously can't feed this many people with seven loaves. So now what, Jesus? See, Jesus is prompting their faith to trust him with the answer. Even though they've got seven loaves and, and they're willing to give them up, they're like, I don't know what to do with these. They know what he can do. But will he again? How many times have we asked that question? I know what God can do, but will he again? Their faith stands kind of exposed right now, challenged a little bit again. I don't know how many of you remember the old computer screens before we had Windows and we used a mouse. It had this flashing cursor on the, on the screen called a C-prompt or a prompt. And it just flashed at you till you typed something in on that line to command the computer to do something. It was prompting you. It drove me crazy. I didn't know how to work one of those when, when uh, MS-DOS was the only way you could talk to a computer, but... That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He's that flashing cursor asking the disciples, what are you going to type in there? What are you going to respond to this question with? What's the right command? You know, Jesus gave a father the same prompt. Back in Mark chapter 5, he says, but Jesus overhearing what was spoken said to the synagogue official, do not be afraid any longer, only believe. The father's daughter was dying. Matter of fact, had died. The people came and told him. And Jesus heard it and said, do not be afraid any longer. Only believe. He's prompting that father to have faith. 
He's prompting his disciples to have faith. He's prompting you every day of your life to have faith. So in that flashing prompt, are you going to, what are you going to type for F-A-I-T-H now? What are you going to type in there? What are you going to feel? It could be in many places. It could be health. It could be finances, family issues, ministry. There's a lot of places that things you could type in there. Well, one place I see for all of us right now as a congregation as well as individuals is God has called a young man into full-time ministry. And by the grace of God, we've given him a full-time position to help learn, gain experience, to train him, to educate him. But now God's kind of asking us, will we trust him to support that position? Will we trust him to support financially as well as with patience? <laughs> because we all need patience for things we're doing. Will we trust God as we give this young man our love, our help, our prayers, our patience to learn and grow into this calling? Because it is a process. It is a growing. And as the body of Christ, we responded, yes, we will we will put a position there, we'll put him in it, and we'll, and we'll give him an opportunity to learn and serve and grow. But individually, we've got to also ask ourselves, are we willing to give whatever it takes to help him do that? And I know some of you asked the question, well, I'm giving all I can, and, and I, I don't, I'm not here to judge that. But I know that one thing Jesus is asking us is to trust him. If he can feed over 30,000 people with 12 loaves of bread and a few fish, we know he can do this. We know we can trust him. We know we can depend on him. So the question is, will you act in faith? Will you act in faith to physically and spiritually support this man's calling? Just pray and trust. This was not a plea for money. This was a plea for us to pray and trust God. And that's all it is. So Jesus prompts the disciples' faith to face such a great need, a need of feeding 4,000 plus people. Then he fulfills the need and the faith with a great creator miracle. Point number three, Jesus feeds hope to save. Look at verses 6 through 10. He commanded the crowd to sit down on the ground. Taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. So they served him to the, them to the crowd. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he said, these were to be served as well. They ate and were satisfied. Then they collected seven large baskets of leftover pieces. About 4,000 were there. He dismissed them, and he immediately got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. See, Jesus responds to their need and he looks to bolster the faith of the disciples. And he commands them to sit down on the ground there in that desolate place. He takes the loaves, the seven loaves. He thanks God for them. And then he breaks them. And he hands the pieces to the disciples to serve. This really does parallel the feeding of the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt. Manna. God provided manna for them. Jesus is providing bread for the Gentiles. Then all of a sudden some fish show up. I'm thinking maybe somebody had some fish, but were kind of holding back to see what would happen. And they got convicted that maybe they should have given the fish in. So they did. Some fish show up. Jesus breaks that, hands it to the disciples to serve. It's interesting to understand something here from a, from a racial tension 
point, the future apostles of Jesus Christ are serving Gentiles. Now, there's a racial divide there that's worse than any we've ever seen. It, it's millennia long. It started all the way back when God gave Abraham that promise that I will bless many peoples from you. It is amazing what the grace of God will do to dividing lines like that, isn't it? It's amazing what he, once you've submitted your life to him, can do to dividing lines like that. He tears this millennia-old prejudice down. Now, it still takes the apostles about 10 years to really grasp it, and you have to read in Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15. You see them finally understand that the gospel is for everybody. But he starts it right here. This is not something new they get in the book of Acts. It's something Jesus was teaching. And like I said, I want to remind you, he created this food out of nothing. He took the small provisions and he fed over 10,000 people. The creator can do that. He can make something out of nothing. He can make something big from something small. And all we must do is trust him with that. So the crowd ate. They were satisfied. It wasn't like they got a nibble. It wasn't something to tide them over till they got home because some of them were maybe days from home. They were satisfied. They were filled. They were fed enough to travel home. But Jesus And Jesus gave them the hope of their physical need right there. But wait, there's more. Not only did he give them food right then, he gave them leftovers. I like leftovers. I'm, I like leftovers. He gave them seven baskets. Now, when he fed the 5,000, the basket was about this big. These are man-sized baskets. There's a different word. He gave them seven baskets, big enough to put a human being in, full of leftovers, so they could travel home and have food. They wouldn't run out on the way. Jesus is giving them hope. Hope. He gives them hope now for this temporal need of hunger. He gives them hope for the future. They've heard that there's a kingdom coming. That's the future. And then he gives them a hope for eternity because he tells them they can be part of that kingdom. Hope. He showed them the compassion of the creator in this miracle. They'd never met the creator before. Matter of fact, they probably had several gods who he'd created the universe, the earth, the sun, the moon, the stars, everything. They had never met the God who created it all, but they did right here. And so then he dismisses the crowd kind of abruptly. And, there's a, and we've talked about this before, but there's a lot of reasons why. One, he wants them to be able to travel while their bellies are full. Okay, get on the road, go home, you know, before you get stranded out in the middle of the desert. That's probably one reason. The other reason is he also is trying to prevent the crowd from wanting to start an insurrection against the Roman Empire. Because by gosh, that's what they would want to do. They would want to create, make Jesus king. We're going to follow him. Well, it wouldn't be bad for Jesus, but it would be bad for them. Rome would come in and crush them. And it wasn't Jesus' plan anyway. He was not to be a king like that. He was to be a king that conquered sin, death, and hell not the Roman Empire. So he dismisses them abruptly, gets them out of there, and he left the area too so that there would be no disturbance because the Romans hated disturbance. But in this miracle, Jesus fed the bellies and the souls of both Jews and Gentiles with this miracle. 
and he gave them the hope of salvation at the same time. The hope of salvation, a sure thing. A sure thing. Have you ever thought about your salvation being a sure thing? We hope in it. We hope and we trust and we believe, but it's a sure thing. You know, there's an old saying, proof is in the pudding. It's a wait and see if it comes true kind of philosophy. But I think Jesus is encouraging us here to have a different philosophy, kind of opposite that. See what I've done. Wait for my salvation. Wait for my hope that I'm giving you. He's encouraging them to do that. To see what God has done in the past. And we see that by reading this book, by the way. We see what he's done in the past. And we believe for what he's going to do in the future. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. God calls us to hope in him. No matter what. Is your hope satisfied? Like their bellies? Full? Complete? Depending on the creator? Is your hope there? I mean, God calls us to hope in him. Have you fed your soul with the hope of Jesus Christ? I mean, that's a question for all of us. Have we fed our, our soul the hope we can have in Jesus Christ? See, we're all journeying to an end. There's an end out there. Our days are numbered. God makes that clear. Everyone's terminal. We know that. But when we look to it, do we have hope or despair? Are we worried or are we at peace that we know what Christ has done for us? I mean, that's really the only two reactions to the end of time, the end of your life. Hear what Paul says about this regarding those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says to the Romans in chapter 8. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. That hope is out there and it's coming. Do you hope for what you do not see? See what Jesus has done for you to give you something to hope in. If you have no hope or the object of your hope disappoints you, then meet Jesus. Meet Jesus the creator. If he takes the time to create food for 4,000 Gentiles, he'll take time to save your soul. His word feeds our hope. We can't have solid, life-sustaining hope if we don't spend time reading about it in his word. See, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that's how we get this hope. And that's what the Bible testifies to, that his death, burial, and resurrection is for our sin. And it gives us hope to be right with God, to be able to know where our final home is going to be. I mean, you don't have to see it now, and no one has. But you do have to hope in it by faith. Christ in you is the hope of glory. So, as I wrap this up, Jesus' feeding of the Gentiles, 
shows his compassion as a creator. Compassion that they had never seen. And then he met a need. He, he instilled some faith in his provision. And he fed their souls. As well as ours when we read this story. At least I hope it feeds your soul. With the hope of salvation. I hope you see his compassion this morning. I hope you really see that Christ did come for our sins. And he has compassion for our souls. No matter what situation we may be in. You, can you believe that he met your need? Do you believe it? Do you want real hope? Well, Jesus showed that to the, these Gentiles. And by that example, he shows it to us. He meets them where they are and saves them from hell because he gave them the truth. And this same offer is available for you. Trust Jesus to forgive and hope will spring eternal. So let's pray over these truths now as we have a time of pastoral prayer where you just pray over these truths. Confess your sins. Admit these truths into your life and, and, and let God teach you how to follow them. If you want to come to the front and pray, we're going to have a time of silent prayer and then I'll close us out. Let's pray.